Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. All right, we're going to get started this morning. We're going to go back up into uh, this. We've been talking here about Abraham, and uh, really we just got started last week. Uh, we're going to talk about Abraham. Uh, Paul, again, is, uh, he is beginning to present the, uh, some evidence here about uh, uh, the validation of justification by faith alone. And he's going to use two exhibits uh, in, that, in, in the courtroom in the, in the prosecuting of the case and so forth here, where he is going to say, uh, Exhibit A, here is Abraham, uh, a central figure in Israel's history. Uh, Abraham will, is going to produce the, the evidence of the living testimony regarding the imputation of righteousness apart from any works. So no works, no activity. And then he's going to say down in verse 6, 7, and 8, here's David, okay? And then he, and David, again, another central figure in Israel's history. And the reason that Paul uses Abraham and David is he's anticipating the objection by the Jews. Because the Jews are going to say, wait a minute, what do you mean this thing about justification without works and without the deeds of the law? Wait a second here. We have Moses, we've got the law, he's been around a long time, and you're just cutting us off at the knees, and guess what? Paul is dealing with answering that. David becomes the living testimony regarding the blessedness. There in verse 8, blessed is the man in whom the Lord will not impute sin. And that's what David is representing is the blessing. And we'll talk about David next week. Verse 9 and down through the rest of the chapter, he's going to deal with that middle wall of partition, the issue of circumcision and uncircumcision, and he's going to go back into Abraham and produce some evidence there that the issue about circumcision is no longer the issue, and it never was the issue when you talk about justification unto eternal life. And that's going to be the issue here. So this morning, uh, I want to look with you at verse 2, 3, and 4. Uh, verse 2, for if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the scripture, Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh is a reward not reckon of debt, but of, I'm sorry, reckon of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Abraham stands as the testimony of one who received the imputed righteousness of God without works, without any activity. He, he, didn't, he did nothing to earn it, and that's the issue with Abraham. And that's what he says there in verse 3, Abraham believed God, and it was what? Counted to him for righteousness. And that issue of accounting, the accounting, the, he, it was accounted, it was impu, imputation, imputed, it was credited to the account. All of those legal, this legal terminology here, even the word justification, we're going to look at it, is a legal term to, to declare someone right and so forth. And really what happens here with Abraham and what Paul's doing is, is he's coming into and he's presenting the evidence of the issue of justification 
unto eternal life, all right, without the deeds of the law, without any activity. So it's faith alone. And he's solidifying the fact, if, coming out of chapter 3 there, verse 27, wherein is boasting then it is excluded by what law? Of works, nay, but by the law of faith. And he's dealing with that issue of solidifying the law of faith. And that the issue of faith, and that's being the only thing that God will accept, has been that way since Adam, since the very beginning. And the fact is, in Israel's program, there were some works and activities that they were designed to do in their salvation package, if you will, but rather, um, it, it's, it's not the issue of justification unto eternal life. Now, I'm going to say that it like that about justification unto eternal life because when you talk about justification and salvation, you have to have the context that those words sit in to help you understand what they mean. Uh, on, on the YouTube, we have a series, uh, Understanding Israel, and there's like 40-something lessons. The last four or five are about the differences of justification and salvation and the fact that those two words mean different things in context to where they sit. Okay? So when you read justification, he was justified, uh, verse 5 there, um, but to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly. He, he's not talking about he declared the ungodly right. He did what? I'm, I'm sorry. He's, not ta he's talking about justification unto eternal life. Okay? He's not declaring the ungodly right in their ungodliness. <laughs> he's, verse 3, he's, he's counting him the righteousness, and that's the issue. And I'll be honest, we're going to, because we're going to look at something here that happens now in Romans 4. Verse 2. For if, uh, verse 1, what shall we say then, that Abraham our father is pertained at the flesh hath found? What did Abraham learn, not about his flesh, but about the flesh? What did he learn about it? We talked about this last time. He learned that all there was was condemnation. If you reap to the flesh, you're going to sow. Uh, sow to the flesh, you're going to reap what? Corruption. Thank you. Galatians 6, okay? It's, it's still early, all right? So... That's the issue. What does that flesh do? The flesh does what? It produces nothing of value. That's what he learned. When he went into Hagar, we looked last time there in Galatians uh, 3 and Galatians 4 and 5 and 6, when he goes into Hagar and produces Ishmael, it's been nothing but trouble ever since that event happened. And that was Abraham, that's Genesis 16, that's Abraham trying to help God out, see? So Genesis 15, that's where we're at in verse Three, for what saith the scripture, Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. We went back and looked in Genesis 15, the first six verses, and what did Abraham believe God about? The seed line and a coming seed and the ability, you're going to have a child and, and he's going to be the seed and his name, by the way, his name, you're going to call him Isaac and labeled him out therefore but Abraham was 199 years old Sarah's womb is dead and they're like wait a minute <laughs> you're going to have to do this god and that's what he that's what he believed god was going to do it but then he goes over in the next chapter Genesis 16 and he begins to operate without some 
some faith. <laughs> he does works without faith. And he goes into Hagar and, and has, by the way, he goes into Hagar and at 99 years old, what did he produce? A child. But it was the wrong child. It was the bond woman, not the free woman. Then in chapter 17, there's where circumcision is introduced. We'll start there in chapter in verse 9. And there you have the sign of the works. But you have the sign of faith. You go, you know, you're gonna, he, uh, Ab- God tells Abraham, Genesis 17, you're going to go down there, you're going to get circumcised, you're going to circumcise the children on the eighth day. Everybody in your household, everybody underneath your, your roof gets circumcised. And, you know, 99 years old and off, what does he got to go do? Get circumcised. Why? Because he believed the word of God. Now, Paul takes us to Genesis 15, 16, and 17. He never takes us to Genesis 22. He never goes on beyond that. You know, Genesis 22, James brings up. All right, now we're going to go to James. And we're going to look this morning because what happens is, is everybody comes and reads Romans 4, 1 to 5, verse 5. um, But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Verse 4, Now to him that worketh is a reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. If you've got to work for something, that means you owe something. And in your salvation, your justification unto eternal life, you don't owe, you are not a part of the formula. We've been through that. Yes, sir? Yes, uh, uh, Genesis 15, 16, and 17. That's where Paul drags us back to. He doesn't take us to Genesis 22, okay? So come on over with me to the book of James. What happens is, is when you begin to read Romans 4, 2, 3, 4, and 5 here, then eventually you're going to read James chapter 2, and you're going to go, huh? Wait a minute, what's going on here? Genesis 2, verse 21. Genesis 2, 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Well, there's Genesis 22. Now we're going to have the work of faith. That's what we're going to have. So Genesis 15, Paul says it's faith and and righteousness with no works, Chapter 16, Paul says, he went and tried to do the works of the flesh, works with no faith. Genesis 17, he says, here's circumcision and the sign of faith. But in 22, now James comes up and says, look, now we've got the work of faith. And what happens is, if you don't understand your Bible rightly divided, you think there's a big issue now in Scripture because Paul says you're justified without the deeds of the law, without works. And James says, no, you're justified, how? By works. So you got this great thing that comes up and pops up. So much so, by the way, that when Martin Luther was translating the Scriptures, he just wanted to throw James completely out of the Bible. Because what Martin Luther did back in the Reformation, uh, he was the, the, the spark that kind of started all that, was that he came to understand that, he, that it was the issue of justification. If you wanted to have eternal life, 
What he gathered and understood was it was justification without works. It was just simply by faith. Well, then he read, then he's working on James 2, and guess what? <laughs> Wait a minute, what is this justified by works stuff? So we'll just throw it. Now, he doesn't, but he sure enough wanted to. But that's the issue. And really what begins to happen is, is you get this James versus Paul thing going. And I just want to take the morning and just look at that here, because we're in Romans 4, and, and maybe shine some light on it for you. Because what happens is, is James says Abraham was justified by his work. Paul said Abraham was, was not justified by his works. So James drags us into Genesis 22. Paul stays in, on his road in 15, 16, and 17, okay? Follow that? Now, between Genesis 15 and Genesis 22, there's about 30 to 40 years in there. We don't know how old Isaac was and so forth when he takes him up. He's, he just says he's a young man, <laughs> Okay, but a young man in scripture is a 35-year-old. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, so when Abraham takes Isaac up to, to kill him there, so James 2 is going to delve into some historical, the, the historical event, and he's going to give some light on it. Now, we, with the completed revelation today, we look back to Genesis 22, and we know that, that, is, that Genesis 22, Abraham's going to take Isaac. He goes three days out. He's to take him up on the mountain. He's to build, he builds the altar. Isaac is laid on the altar. He pulls the knife back, ready to cut, kill him, and the angel of the Lord stops him. Okay? We now know, looking back at that, that that is Calvary, the cross. For three days, in Abraham's mind, Isaac was dead. Three days, in the mind of the father, the son, the Lord, is dead. But what does Isaac know? He believed God. He knows that that's the promised seed, so he has to do what with him? Resurrect him. So there's a resurrection issue. There's a willingness by Isaac to be bound in the Help dad get him up on the, you know, up on the altar. <laughs> There's all of these pictures and the types in that. And we understand that in James 2 records the historical event of that. While Paul in Romans 4, he goes back to the historical events of Genesis 15. So when you come to James, I'll just talk about James here for a minute. James... When you begin to ish, deal with, the, with you know, questions and problems that come up like this, you have to take a pause. Paul says, not justified by works. James says, was justified by works. Okay? So then the question is, is who is Paul and who is James? Well, we already know who Paul is. Romans chapter 1. He's a servant of God. He's the apostle of the Gentiles. He's our apostle to the church, the body of Christ. We know that. We understand that. But who is James then? Well, come back to James 1 and verse 1. James 1 verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, that's what Paul is too, by the way. He's a servant of God and and of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
but to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. So you've got some things there in 1 1 that helps you understand who James is and who James is writing to. He's writing to who? The 12 tribes scattered abroad. Very specific. It doesn't, by the way, it doesn't say he was writing to Israel. He says he's writing to who? The 12 tribes. He's very specific because James is going to be writing to specifically that believing remnant in the 70th week of Daniel in the tribulation. Not a Israel as a whole. I mean, sometimes we say, oh, he's writing to Israel, but he's not. He's writing to the 12 tribes that are what? Scattered. Acts 8, they are scattered. Why are they scattered in Acts 8? The persecution of Saul of Tarsus against them. So it is, so there's no believers left in Jerusalem, Acts 8, 1 says, other than who? The apostles. So it's, but who else is in Jerusalem? Israel, the Jews. It's very specific to who he's writing to, okay? And, and it's okay to say Israel, but it's that... <laughs> The technicality of it is who is he writing to? Now, come back to Galatians 2. Try to do this quickly. So just one section of verses here about who James is. All right? James chapter number, I'm sorry, Galatians chapter number 2. And in Galatians 2, you have the event of Acts 15 where Paul goes up to Jerusalem. Paul and, and Barnabas and Titus go, verse 1. Then 14 years after I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and took Titus with me also. And basically what they do is they go to Jerusalem because some, some of the Jews are out there saying, you Gentiles, yes, you're saved by the cross, but in order to be saved and to prove you're saved and to stay saved, you've got to follow Paul, uh, Moses. You got to get circumcised and you got to follow the law. Okay? That's why Paul says there in verse number three, but neither Titus, who was with me being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. Why? Because what were they saying in Acts 15? You got to be circumcised to prove you're saved, stay saved, and be saved and be good. <laughs> Titus says, You ain't touching me with that with a 10 foot pole, man. All right? Verse four. And that because of false brother unawares brought in, who came in privately to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us unto bondage, to whom we gave place by subjection, no, not for an hour. Notice how Paul's attitude about false doctrine is. Oh, we just had lunch and hung out and got along. No way, man. He says, I didn't, we didn't put up with, we didn't even give them a chance to talk. We shut them down. And you go read Acts 15, and you see Luke's account, Luke sitting in the audience. Paul, Galatians 2, is behind the closed doors. Here's what's happened. He goes in there, uh, verse 2, uh, the end of that verse, but privately to them which were of reputation. He goes in, sits with, uh, with the apostles and with James. Okay? The apostle, this, by the way, James is not the apostle James in Acts uh, 10, 11, or 12, right in there, he's, I think it's 12, he's killed by Herod, the apostle is. So this is James, the half-brother of the Lord, who is one of the leaders of the little, the little uh, flock church there at Jerusalem, okay? Now, keep reading, verse 9. And when James, Cephas, that's Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given unto me, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship that we should go unto the heathen and they unto who? 
the circumcision. So James, by the way, notice the order, James, Peter, and John. That is the exact order, by the way, just kind of coincidental because the author of the Bible is divine, of the Hebrew epistles. It's very interesting. It's Hebrews, James, 1st, 2nd Peter, the Johns, and then Jude and Revelation was written by John. Okay? So you have the order given of the Hebrew epistles, but who was, where was Paul going to go? Paul was going to who? The heathen, right? Who was James to go to? The circumcision. That 12 tribes, that specifically the believing remnant. James is a servant of God. Paul's a servant of God. James is at Jerusalem. His focus is to who? To the circumcision. So when he's speaking, he's speaking to who? The circumcision. By the way, Paul is sent to the heathen. The heathen, the unbelievers. That, make, that group makes up, according to Acts chapter 7, both an unbelieving Jew and the Gentiles. Because in Acts 7, Stephen pronounces the nation of Israel, the leadership specifically, to be uncircumcised in heart and ears. They, were, they, they had hardened their hearts. They had become heathen. Don't mess, you can't mess with the word. Don't miss the words, but don't mess with them. All right? So James, he's going to come up now, and he's going to be communicating to who? To the circumcision. See that. By the way, later in Acts, James and Paul kind of butt heads a little bit because Paul, James says, we hear, now this is Rick's paraphrase, okay? We hear that you're out there saying awful things about follow, that you're not supposed to follow the law of Moses. It's like Acts 20, 21 right in there. Well, was Paul saying that? Yeah, he was preaching that. You're not going to get justified by the deeds of the law. No way, man. It's faith alone. So James, he got his little nose bent. But what has he done here in Galatians 2, which is in Acts 15? He's agreed. Right hand of fellowship. Matthew 18, 16, and 18. Whatever they bind is bound, and whatever they loose is loose. They are loosing their commission as apostles. And saying, you know what, Paul's the guy now. So if someone came and said, hey, I want to be justified, I want to know what's going on, you know what James would say? Go see Paul. You know how you know that? 2 Peter 3, that's exactly what Peter says. Peter says, I don't understand everything going on, but if you want to have complete understanding, you're going to go read Paul and his epistles. And he'll give you understanding why there's been a delay, and, and specifically the topic of long-suffering. See how all that kind of just gels together? Helps you when you understand what's going on. They realize, James and Peter, Cephas and John realize that the prophecy program has shut down and that God is doing something else now. So you know what they do? They write letters to the believing remnant. James, Peter's, and John's. In the book of the Revelation. They write, P, they write letters. Guys, the kingdom's not going to happen like we thought it was going to happen. But when it does, this is what's going to happen. <laughs> and they lay that out for you. 
So James, we come back to James 2, or the book of James. James, he's going to be focusing on who? The circumcision, those 12 tribes scattered abroad, specifically that little believing remnant, that little flock. So, James is not talking to you and I today in the dispensation of grace. You got it? All right, let's go. We're going to go next door, have coffee and donuts. No, we have a few more things to look at, okay? <laughs> Don't look at me like that. He ain't getting off or easy. I just got here, okay. So you got James 2. Run back to Romans 4 just real quick, okay? The word justification, the word salvation. Paul to the Philippians says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And people go, well, see, you're supposed to work for your salvation. That's not what the verse said. It said, work out your salvation. But what helps you understand the word justification or salvation is the context that it sits in. Context is king, period. Okay? I'm talking to a a man, and he's he's got some questions about a word and so forth. And you know what? Context is king. It doesn't matter what you think it ought to say or what you, it's king. Now, Romans 4, when he says verse 2, For if Abraham were justified by works, he, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. What is the context of that issue of justified? Verse 3, he believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. What's the context of? When Paul says he was justified by faith without the deeds of the law. What's the context? Where are we at? We're in Romans 1, 2, and 3, aren't we? We've we've just had the charges laid out about man. They're sinful. They're guilty. But God says, I got a way for you to get out of your sentence. Your sentence is eternal life, eternal damnation in the lake of fire. That's your sentence, second death. But I've got a way. I got a deal over here for you that I'm going to make available through the propitiatorial work of my son. You're not involved in the deal. The deal is done between me and my son. All you have to do is do nothing but believe me. Believe that my son's sacrifice satisfies all of the justice required, all of that that is required by the righteousness of God, which what does God's righteousness require? Perfection. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And by the way, the only way, it's unto all, Romans 3, and upon all them that what? That's it. How much energy does it take to believe? None. It really doesn't. Okay? Now, so when Paul talks here in Romans 4, what's the context of being justified? imputed to righteousness. Well, it's the context here is that they are what? (laughs) That God has provided the way. Paul uses the term justification as someone who has imputed righteousness unto eternal life. Now, go to James 2, or to James. James is not talking about justification or justified in the same manner as the Apostle Paul. Paul's context is imputed righteousness unto eternal life, given to you freely as a free gift by his grace, by God. 
James 2. Look at the context. James 2 is not talking about that issue at all. James 2, verse 14. Here's the context of 2.21. 2.21, just real quick. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son? See, he's justified by works. Well, what's the context? Verse 14. What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works, can faith save him? There's a, he's talking about someone who says they have what? Faith. But they're not, they have no what? Works. James is talking about perfecting their faith. Verse 15. If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead. Notice, being a what? Being alone. Verse 18. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. He's talking about perfecting faith. And the focus here is, is on the work of faith. You see, folks, James is talking about if the circumcision have faith, all right, the expectation for them is to show it. They have to go and perfect their faith. They have to sacrifice. These guys are in the 70th week of Daniel. If they don't take the mark of the beast, you know what they are? They are, verse 15, they are destitute of food. They are destitute of the things which are needful to the body. They are, verse 16, they're, they're destitute, they're naked. They don't have food and clothes. You see, what happens is, is Christian dumb, D-U-M-B out there, brings this in and says, see, we ought to be taking care of the poor. We ought to be helping this and do it. And, that, and that, that's where social justice came from. The problem is, is James 2 isn't talking about you and I. Now, should we remember the poor? Paul says, remember the poor. Yeah. But let's do it under Paul's instructions, not James' instructions. Let's do it appropriately and accurately. Okay? Look, at, look, look here at James. They, they're expected to do something to perfect their faith. By the way, you and I, we do not perfect our faith. Okay? We are to perfect the what? The inner man. Come back to 2 Timothy 3. I'll just show you this verse. We read it. I think we read right through it. You see, folks, what are we to do? We're to grow up, aren't we, spiritually? We're to grow into some maturity. We're not perfecting our faith. 2 Timothy 3, we read verse 16 and 17. But look at verse 17. That the man of God may be what? Perfect, mature. What is perfect? Thoroughly furnished unto what? All good works. How do we do that? We get in the godly edification process and we grow. 
these guys in James 2, they're doing something else because they have to sacrifice. They have sold everything and laid it at the apostles' feet. They don't have anything anymore. But these guys, in, go back to James 2, they're sitting in the middle of the 70th week out there or in, in that event, and you know what they've got to do? If somebody knocks on their door and says, hey, man, we haven't eaten for a week, and they come on in, the cupboard's full, let's get you set up. But if they say, no, God be with you, then you know what James is going to say? He's going to say, you know what? John's going to come along and say, they really weren't of us. They really were not a part of the believing remnant. Because what is the believing remnant going to do? They're going to do the work that perfects their faith. You see, the justification here has nothing about salvation unto eternal life. Look at verse 19. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. Don't ever forget that. You know? Man, you guys... Oh, yeah, we know who, well, so, that, over there in Acts, that devil looks up there and says, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? <laughs> I love that little, and it's like, hey, they know, you know. Verse 20, but will thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead. Look at that, faith, no working, is what? Dead. So the, for the little flock, you know what it is? In the 70th week of Daniel for that believing remnant, that little flock, it's time to shut up, put up or shut up is what it is. It's time to, it's time to, you say you have faith. Here's the expectation. When someone knocks on that door, you're going to give. You're going to become a servant. The issue in the kingdom, come back to chapter 1, verse 18, is the issue of service. The Lord over there, he goes up, he washes the disciples, the apostles' feet. Peter pulls back and says, no, Lord, I should. He goes, no, I'm here to show you how to be a servant, man. You guys are arguing about who's going to sit on the left hand and the right hand of the throne. And, God's, and, and the Lord looks at him and says, you guys think that the kingdom is run like the Gentiles rule and lord over all. And it isn't. You want to be the least in the kingdom? You want to be the greatest in the kingdom? What are you going to have to do? You're going to serve, man. If you're a servant, you're the greatest. If you're not, you're a, you know, uh, serve me attitude. That's why later in, in these Hebrew epistles, he pulls out that illustration of someone that comes in that's rich, and you go sit him down in the good seat, but you put the stinky, dirty guy way in the back. He's like, no, that's not what it is. Everyone, okay, that's what's going on here. Look, look, look at chapter 1. Look at verse 18. You see, folks, you, they're going to say they have faith. There's an expectation for them to do some service. Now look at 118. Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Do you see that begat us? That's that issue in John 3 of being born again. Not physically but spiritually. These guys are begotten of God. Come over to 1 John chapter 5. 
a verse that I enjoy using when you talk to people about eternal life because it says what I want it to say. But he's talking to the believing remnant. James is talking to the believing remnant, to people who are justified by faith without the deeds of the law. They're justified people. And then he says, okay, that faith that you say you have has got some works to go perform over here. And that's the context of that issue that James sits in. 1 John 5, verse 13. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God. You see? Believe. They're believers. They're already in the little flock. That ye may know that ye have what? Eternal life. And that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. See that? How, how do they, they know that they have eternal life? Because what? They believed on God. Now come back to James chapter 2. James 2. The, James is writing to that believing remnant, so they're already justified. Okay? And he says, you guys got some, there's an expectation of some working for you to be doing. By the way, the reason that their program, Israel's program, Israel's, they, uh, Keith Blades one time called it Israel's salvation package, and I like that, because it is, it's a package deal. The reason that it says you've got work to do is because they are waiting for a literal, visible, physical, earthly, Davidic kingdom that requires some literal, literal physical, visible, earthly works and activities. You and I, we inherit the heavenly places. We've been talking about it now for four months. But that's a spirit realm, isn't it? We inherit that because of who we are in Christ, and we got there how? No working. Okay? You with me? All right. Where did I tell you? James 2. Notice James 2. Notice verse 12. So speak ye, and so do. Now he just gave them verse 10, For whosoever shall keep the whole law, and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. For he's, he that said, Do not commit adultery, and, and also said also, Do not kill. Now if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. You broke one, right? Speak ye, so speak ye, and so what? Do, as they that shall be, notice that word, judged by the law of liberty. You see that issue of judgment? They're going to be judged? Now, he's, the reference there is to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ when he comes back. And he comes into Jerusalem, into Israel, and he begins to judge. So the, the challenge here by James is that the little flock is called upon to the point of martyrdom. You remember the overcomers in Revelation 2 and 3? Some of them are going to lose their life. They're going to be what? Judged. Some of them are going to come along. They, they, are, to, they, have, they are expected, they are challenged to have a sacrificing, a sacrifice living for someone else. That little flock, they are told, the Lord tells them, he says, man, if you endure to the end, you'll be what? And everybody goes, oh, see, you've got to endure to the end to be saved. But saved from what? Saved into what? <laughs> the kingdom. 
Say, they're going to endure. They're, they are designed to go down through the seven years, the 70th week of Daniel, and they're designed to sacrifice so that they can do what? Endure and go in. By the way, what do they get when they go, when, when this group that goes through the, the 70th week, when they get into the temple, what are they, are, and I just told you, in the kingdom, what, are, what do they become? They work in the temple, don't they? They have a reward, don't they, of something special. They, they've been ex elevated to serving in the temple and the tabernacle and so forth there and doing. Go read Revelation 2, 3 and then jump down to the end where they, they're resurrected into that temple service. Why is that? Because they have this issue here in James 2. They're living in it. Somebody, by, oh, by the way, Matthew 25, a lot of by the ways this morning. Matthew 25, the Lord divides up the Gentile nations. He puts the goats on, on the one side and the sheep on the other. And he says, when you guys did what? When you fed me, you, you came and visited me, you did all these things. Now here's to the sheep, here's the kingdom for you. And they say, when did we do it? And you know what he said? When you did it to the least of these, my brethren. Well, who's the my brethren? The Jews. But specifically who? The believing remnant. The 12 tribes scattered abroad. The little flock. So just as the little flock are taking care of business, there are some believing Gentiles, too, that step up and, and help during that 70th week of Daniel. Okay? Verse 21, let's get into this. We've got just a few minutes left. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? James isn't focusing on Abraham's imputation of righteousness unto eternal life. He's focusing in on justified by works. Key word in that verse is the word when. See that? I got it boxed up, starred. I don't star, but I got it boxed in. When? When was, just, when was Abraham justified by works? Not Genesis 15, but where? Genesis 22. Okay? Some 40 years in between those two events. Come over with me to Luke 7. Back to Luke 7. So you begin to understand that that issue of justif justified and justif justified justification, they don't mean what we, con we trigger right into. There's a, a context about it. Now, look at Luke 7, and notice verse 29. Hold on to James 2. We're going to go back over there. Luke 7, verse 29. And all the people that heard him, that's John the Baptist, and the publicans justified God before being baptized with the baptism of John. Justified God. So God was a sinner, and he had to have righteousness imputed to him unto eternal life. No. So then what is justified here? Justified. What did they do by being baptized by John's baptism? What did they say that God was? Right. Justification, a legal term, means to, as a legal term, means to show sufficient reason and adequate grounds for something to be right. It is, 
justified. They're acknowledging the truthfulness, the validity of it, the legitimacy of it. See that? How did they, how did they declare God to be right? They believed him, and then they went over and got baptized by John. Look down at verse 35, 735. But wisdom is justified of all her children. Wisdom is declared righteous unto eternal life. No. Wisdom is is validated. It's legitimized. It's adequate by who? All the children. All, all, All her children. See that? So when you come back to James 2, you got to be careful to don't dump in our knee-jerk definition of justified into James 2. Because the context says, no, he's our... Well, look at verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when... Okay, Genesis 22, right? Verse 22... Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made, what? Perfect. That's what he's talking about, a perfecting of their faith. Verse 23, And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. Uh Uh-oh. When did that happen? Genesis 15, not Genesis 22. See how James validates the justification of Abraham by faith alone. See that? He says, hey, (laughs) Abraham was justified by works. Abraham's faith was made perfect when he went and took Isaac, but he was already justified over here. You see how it's fascinating how James confirms what Paul says in Romans 4. Look at that verse 23 in the... He acknowledges Genesis 15. Now, we didn't finish the verse. Verse 23, and he was called the friend of God. And that's really where everybody goes, oh. But when was Abraham called the friend of God? Genesis 15 or Genesis 22? 22. Go back to Genesis 22. You know, you always ask questions and... It's like, anyway, James 2.23, he was imputed unto him for righteousness, colon, and he was called the friend of God. Now, Genesis 22. James is dealing with a different definition of the word justified, justification. Again, Genesis 22 is unique to Abraham, to the little flock. In, it's a picture of the little flock in the tribulation time. It's a focus on the perfecting of their faith manifested by their works, their activity, their sacrifice for one another. We know the story. Verse 1, And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, here I am. Tempt there. Hebrews 11 says that God tested Abraham. That's what he's doing here. He's testing him. 
And so off they go. And he said, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains which I will tell thee. Later, that mountain becomes Calvary, Golgotha's hill. Okay? And Abraham rose up early in the morning, saddled his ass, took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son, and they and clave the wood for the burnt offering, and rose up and went unto the place which God had told him. Then on the third day Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar. For three days Abraham knows that he's got to kill his boy, and his son is dead. And Abraham said unto his young men, Abide ye here while uh, with the ass, and I and the lad will go uh, yonder and worship and, and come again to you. What does, Isaac, what does Abraham know he's going to do up there? Kill Isaac, but he says, Me and the lad are going to go and worship, kill him, and then we're going to come back. So what does Abraham know? Resurrection. Eternal life is there. It's promised. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac his son. And he took the fire in his hand and the knife and, they and went both of them together. And Isaac spake unto Abraham his father and said, My father, and he said, here, I, here am I, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Isn't that interesting? Isaac knows what's going on. He, sees the, he is clued in to what's going to happen up here. And Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went both of them together. Notice Isaac never argues, never pitches a fit, never says, Wait a minute, buddy. He just what? Willingly goes and, and puts himself under the will of his father, Abraham. And they came to the place where God had told him of, and Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And, and Isaac was arguing and kicking and screaming. No, not at all. Willingly went. And Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. And the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Lay not thy hand upon thy, this, the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. Now watch, for now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. Notice God through the angel. By the way, the angel steps in. He says, Abraham, Abraham. <laughs> you know, anytime the Lord repeats something like that, he'll say, Verily, verily. You better pay attention to what he's verilying. It's, in, it's, it's, a, it's usually trouble for Israel. But here he call, gets Abraham's attention, says, don't kill him. Why? Now I know that thou fearest God. Wait a minute. You mean Abraham never feared God before? No, he feared God. But now what's happened? What did Abraham just do that we just read down through? He passed the test. See? He went and he, his faith was perfected. The evidence has been demonstrated. The personal experience. God says, now I know thou fearest me. Abraham was willing to kill Isaac because he knew what? 
what the Word of God told him was going to happen, and it would happen. And he did it without hesitation. That's what the little flock's got to do back over there in that tribulation, is they don't hesitate. 1 John lays out seven tests. Those seven tests, the, one of the last ones is, is the issue of uh, if they say that Christ came in the Spirit, came in the flesh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, then they're, of, they're from God. But if they don't say that, then they're of the Antichrist. And in 2 John, he says, the, here's, a, here's an illustration of that test. Somebody knocks on your door and they, give, they fail the test. You better slam that door in their face. You don't even tell them have a good day. Godspeed. Because if you do tell them Godspeed, you're guilty with them. Whew. See, this is not a, just a tiptoe through the tulips and God's going to shake. This is serious stuff. Okay, now I, now I know that thou fearest God. Now come over with me to 2 Chronicles. Chapter 20. 2 Chronicles, chapter 20. 2 Chronicles 20. Second Chronicles 20 and verse number 7. You see, folks, this stuff is... People confuse with Paul and James, and they have a big argument and big fights and everything... And really, James confirms what Paul says, but James is moving contextually into something else, completely not even talking about being justified unto eternal life, but rather what's required of that believing remnant. Second Chronicles 20, verse 7. Art not thou our God, who didst drive out the inhabitants of this land before the, thy people Israel, and gavest it to the seed of Abraham? Thy friend forever. See how Abraham, the seed of Abraham, Abraham is thy friend forever. Come over to Isaiah 41. Isaiah 41. Isaiah 41 and verse 8. When did, when does it, I mean, you think about the seed of Abraham, you got Isaac. Then you got Jacob, then you got the 12 boys, and then you get into the 12 tribes and so forth after the exodus under Moses. But when does Abraham become God's friend? When he hauled Isaac up that hill and was ready to do that. Because he demonstrated the personal, the evidence that he's willing to go that, to sacrifice everything for what the word of God said to him. That sacrificial living. By the way, in Matthew 5, you read the, in 6 and 7, you see the lifestyle of the kingdom saints in the Sermon on the Mount. And you know what they're doing? They're not living for themselves. They're living for others. And they're in that issue of service. Now you found Isaiah 41, right? Verse 8. But thou, Israel, art my servant, Jacob whom I have chosen, the seed of Abraham my friend. John 15. John chapter 15. Abraham's the friend of God. What does it mean to be the friend of God? You got John 15? John 15. Hang on a minute. I'm looking for... Let me ask you. 
Okay, yeah, there it is. John 15, look, if you will, at verse 12. This is my commandment, that ye love one another as I have loved you. Okay? Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his... Who? Who's the friend of God? The seed of Abraham. Specifically, that believing remnant. Because there are the twelve tribes scattered abroad. Verse... 14, ye are my friends, if ye do whatsoever I command you. Ooh. What did he do to Abraham? Abraham, take your boy, go down there, third, rock, third hill from the sun, <laughs> third rock from the sun, go down there, this one you climb, kill him. By the way, you, finish, you keep reading in Genesis 22, he didn't provide a lamb, he provided a he-goat. For the sacrifice. Very interesting. Because the burnt offering, the only time the lamb is sacrificed is at what time? Passover. They weren't on Passover. They were doing something else. Okay? Anyway, work that out. Verse 14, what does he say? I lay down my life for who? My friends. Verse 15, henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth. Now, pay attention to 15 carefully here. But I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard of my Father, I have made known unto you. Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that ye should go and bring forth what? Fruit. And that your fruit should remain. And whatsoever you shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it you. These things have I commanded you, that you love one another. And that's exactly what James 2 is teaching them. You are to love one another. He, lay, he laid down his, his life for who? For his friends. You're his friends. Little flock, James 2. So you know what you guys got to do now, James 2, little flock, 70th week of Daniel, tribulation time? You better go do the same thing and lay down your life for your friends. And get out of this me, 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 me to we, we, we. <laughs> Change that thinking. Okay? So James 2, to the little flock, don't go offer an arm of comfort to someone and not follow through. Because if you do, then you're really not who you say you are. You really don't have faith. Because the expectation that that little flock, that believing remnant has, is that God says, I will take care of you. And I will restore you. And I will, and he, that whole list of all those kingdom blessings, that's why in Romans 4, Paul moves to David. And blessed is the man. I will do that. Paul, Romans 4, he's talking about justification unto eternal life. Having your sins completely and totally forgiven. Imputation of righteous, imputed righteousness unto eternal life by faith alone and no works. James says, come over to Deuteronomy 13. James says, I'm talking about Abraham perfecting that faith by what? 
by doing something, by working, and by being and becoming a friend of God. Now, real quick, it's time to quit. Deuteronomy 13, verse 6. They are testing the false prophets, okay? Verse 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. Then in verse 6, he gives a test for family. But family and friends. But I want you to notice something right in the middle of the verse. We'll read the verse. If thy brother, the son of thy mother, or thy son, or thy daughter, or thy wife of thy bosom, or thy friend. Now, see the comma? Which is as thine, thine own, what? Soul, comma. The definition of a friend is given to you right there. We always say our wives or our husbands are our soulmates. Wrong. They're not. Do you know what your soulmate is? A friend that has the same heartbeat as you do. And when the Lord looks at them in John 15 and says, I lay down my friend for my life for my friends, and you're my friends if you keep my what? Commandments. You know what they have? The same heartbeat as the Lord does. And he says, you're my friend. See how they do that? Now verse 6 goes on, entice thee secretly, saying, let us go, and, and so forth, you're to reject them. That's just a little aside about that issue of being a friend. A friend is someone that has the same heartbeat as you. Now, your wife can, and, or your husband, your spouse, should have that. Don't get me wrong, okay? But in Scripture, the friend is going to be thinking about it the same way you're thinking about it, that heartbeat. And the Lord says, that little flock, you're my friends. You know why? Because you're beating the same, you're thinking about the same thing I am, and you're concerned about the same. And you know what? Paul uses it the same way in his epistles when he talks about the men who, who work with him, and he calls them my fellow laborers and so forth and everything like that. Okay? All right, Romans 4. We'll pick up with David next week. We'll get down in verse 6, 7, and 8. I just wanted you to see that issue of James 2, James versus Paul. We're not talking about the same thing. We're talking about two different things. Okay? All right. Dearly Father, we thank you for the morning, Lord. We thank you for your word. And above all, Lord, we thank you for who we are in your son, for everything that you've given to us. And we'll give you the praise and the honor and the glory for that. In your name we pray. Amen. All right.